Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Frank Sauer and Sebastian Facht. Dr. Frank Sauer is a senior researcher at the German Armed Forces University in Munich, and Sebastian is part of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. He's a defense expert and the head of the FNF Security Hub. We talk about artificial intelligence being deployed in the military, where we give some examples like autonomous weapons, killer robots, but mostly we talk about ethical questions and the human component in this technology. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you more about some events organized by ELF. So I'm here with uh, Dr. Frank Sauer and Sebastian Fact. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks. All right, and we are going to dive right in because uh, one of the principal things that we need to do as the beginning of this conversation is to go into some def definitions. So when we talk about automation, algorithm used, statistical method uh, treatment, all this has people intuitively think about this in computers and in their daily life, but we're talking about in the military setting. So maybe I can start with that and any one of you gentlemen can pop in at any time. How can we best describe this to our listeners? When we talk about artificial intelligence in the military, what would be the message that you would give to someone that it's completely outside the realm and trying to understand better what we're, ta what we're talking about? Sure. So, um, I mean, the main message would be it is on the cusp of being widely deployed. It will be used. That is for sure. The question is how should it be used and how do we want to use it? That would be, in a nutshell, basically the main message to, to take away from my point of view. Sebastian? Yeah, maybe I can add a, a little anecdote from my own military past. Um, I used to work on a mine hunting vessel, which is a 50 meter long boat with 45 people crew. And our job was to basically patrol the sea, scan the seabed and uh, categorize and identify any contacts on the seabed. And in order to do that, we had to spend weeks at sea, cook our own meals, sleep on the boat and, and actually work. And today you have systems that can perform this task fully autonomously. Um, so all that labor that I still did six years ago can be performed by a, a software and a system already now, which makes me feel like a grandpa. Um, but this is, this is one example how an autonomous weapon system can perform uh, tasks that were previously tasks of human beings and that are now uh, delegated to computers. All right, those are two great descriptions. I'm, I'm just thinking people normally in pop culture and when we watch the movies and we watch television and for example uh, the uh, Netflix episode uh, Metalhead I think is a good indicator. People think of artificial intelligence in a military setting as we are on the cusp and Frank you were saying that because it's about to be used but people are thinking of killer robots, killer machines, doing their thing, completely cut off from the chain of command. I don't think that's realistic, but you can tell me a little more where we are at that point. Well, let's go back to Sebastian's anecdote, maybe, because I think it shows really what is what is the key to take away from um, 
from all of this without necessarily even going to go into the terms uh, the terms being artificial intelligence and machine learning and these things. Um, the terms are very, um, I think, um, you know, prone to conjure up all kinds of misunderstandings in people because they think that artificial intelligence is, you know, akin to human intelligence and that machine learning is akin to human learning. Both of those things are not true. Um, I mean, it is basically, as Sebastian said, it is about automation. Is it, is it, it is about machines performing tasks or, or functions that formerly required human beings. But this uh, capability of the machine is very, very limited. Um, there's, you have to, mm, you know, put a lot of work into getting a machine to do one specific and only that specific task properly. And um, so the application is still uh, very limited. Uh, but still, you can do, and we see that all the time on on our phones, or um, you know, in all the different areas of life where artificial intelligence techniques, so to say, uh, that fit under that wide umbrella term of artificial intelligence, keeps changing all the time. What that really is, um, so we see all the time that there's already powerful things to be uh, done with this, uh, but. We're still far away from from these science fiction notions that you were referring to in the, the Black Mirror episode of, of Metalhead, or of course the Terminator is a pop culture reference that usually gets kicked around here. So we're very much not talking about um, machines that have some sort of you know that are uh, self-aware or anything like that. We're talking about actually not very intelligent machines, but we're talking about stupid machines. And but still we need to be very very worried about. What stupid machines applied in a in an improper manner can can do and can lead to, and what kind of risks can be connected to that? Do you gentlemen have an idea then how stupid they are, and then going too much to one extreme, which is having the machines being stupid so that they don't get to be terminators, but having them be so stupid then that they make very crucial mistakes? Okay, so let me give you a very specific example. So it's clear to everyone that. One, we're not talking about the Terminator or anything like that. And two, we're not talking about future weapons. So there's a so-called loitering munition called Harpy, and it's an Israeli-made munition. So you can imagine it to be like a little drone thingy that you shoot up in the air, then it circles for a half an hour or so, and it's looking for uh, targets. And the targets are signatures, radar signatures of um, anti-air installations, right? And when the munition, which is loitering and looking for that, for these signatures, is picking those up, it dives onto the targets, uh, onto the target, and explodes, destroying the radar that it targeted. And maybe some of the listeners have heard this term, lethal autonomous weapon system, being kicked around. That's uh, how this sort of um, Autonomy or automation in weapon systems is currently being described within the United Nations um, framework, where uh, there's a debate going on in the convention on certain conventional weapons in Geneva, where diplomats are having an exchange or have had an exchange for quite a number of years now, how to maybe regulate or deal with that sort of development in the military realm. And Harpy, this loitering munition, shows that we're already entering this era of, let's say, algorithmically or automatically um, operated weapon systems. And I said before that what, sh you know, should be 
worrisome to all of us is that these systems are very, very stupid. Because what is Harpy really doing? It is just looking for that one signature. It is a pattern recognition system that does not understand any of the context of the battlefield. So for instance, Harpy would not recognize that the radar signature that it's tracking and targeting um, is coming from the rooftop of a hospital, say. And obviously, you know, under the laws of war, targeting a hospital with a weapon would be a war crime. And no human commander, at least no responsible human commander, would ever, uh, um, you know, allow such a strike to take place. The machine would, because it's it has no understanding of what is actually going on. It does not understand context, has no awareness of all the, you know, intricacies of warfare. And that's one of the things that has people very worried from a specifically legal perspective with regard to uh, these AI, machine learning, pattern recognition, automation techniques being used in weapon systems that the systems then uh, are not you know, able to function properly under the laws of war because they are literally too stupid to do that. So we need more human control uh, is what most people argue for uh, at this point in time. Um, to, you know, have automation in the military, also in weapon systems, but to, you know, be able to use them in a manner that keeps, you know, human control intact. So there's legal accountability and responsibility and, and all these things. And as a matter of fact, and that's the last thing that I will say to this, because, you know, it's a pretty lengthy, uh, lengthy explanation. There's a successor system to Harpy called Harop, and Harop has more human control built in. So Harop is now basically radioing back, asking a human, I've got this target lined up. It looks like it's uh, exactly the radar that I'm looking for. Are you greenlighting this attack? And so we can see that, you know, even from a purely military perspective, there are strong incentives to keep human control um, over targeting decisions and the selection and engagement of targets on the battlefield. Very good. And we will get into ethical questions uh, later on. But then, Sebastian, I will go to you because you were just given an example of all those, all those laborious work that humans do did in a, in a vessel, for example, now is being replaced by computers who do the same thing. Then how worried are you that what Frank just described, the, the error because of the how basic the system is and how fallible it is, how much can this then become a problem for people like, for example, that are living in a, su in a submarine and just patrolling the oceans? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's very important to make that distinction between systems that are lethal or that uh, operate weapons, the sharp end of the military, and systems that perform uh, support tasks. And I believe still that the majority of systems that we are talking about when it comes to artificial intelligence and the military at the moment are doing the latter, are performing all those laborious tasks. And I think here there's great chances and opportunities to make uh, life for military personnel easier and also much safer. Because like in the example that I gave, it required 45 people to be at sea. If you have an autonomous mine hunting system, those 45 people can stay ashore or perform perform different tasks. So those are very clear advantages. But when we talk about the sharp end, I am very worried <clears throat> because the, the, the clear advantage other than keeping people out of war uh, is that it increases the speed of war. And I think here is a dilemma 
because if you want to use this advantage and make war faster, uh, it is much harder to to um, integrate this element of human control. It might, in an increased speed warfare scenario, it might be basically impossible to still incorporate that human judgment because war is just becoming too fast. And and so this is what worries me. Um, and um, I I very much hope that we can we can retain this human control that Frank Frank talked about. Um, but this will require much more effort and much more successes in the negotiations on regulating those arms. And I'm quite pessimistic. There's this quote from uh, the American author Isaac Asimov. He famously once said, um, science produces technology faster than society produces wisdom. And this point has been proven when it comes to conventional weapons, nuclear weapons in the past. And I hope that we don't prove that point again when it comes to um, lethal autonomous weapon systems. But stay, staying with you, Sebastian, because you were just mentioning that most of the work now, it's been done automatically and that helps, for example, a sailor or a, a radar operator. It reminds me of the movie The Hunt for the Red October, where the software was so advanced that it was confusing a submarine with a, with a hump whale. Which, okay, I know again, and Frank just said, we have to be careful not to go too much into fiction, but could that become even more a problem? Or in your opinion, that is less of a problem? We'll have less of those problems then. Well, still today, you see that the uh, the degree of automation in submarines is lower than on surface vessels because the the complexity of the underwater situation requires more human judgment than less. Um, so uh, submariners are usually the ones who have better navigational skills and so on than their colleagues who work on the surface. So I think this is a domain where, because it's so complex, you you need that human judgment. But certainly some elements will be replaced at some point, but, um, and, and those technologies have to be tested and, and proven. Um, but I think when it comes to navigation, to target, um, to, to the, 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 the search for targets and those, those things, um, I believe that artificial intelligence will probably uh, have certain advantages over human judgment very soon. Frank, you want to yeah, add something maybe. on that? Yeah, uh, so I think you're touching on a very important point, Ricardo, and um, it, I think it's a good opportunity for me to elaborate a bit more on what I said before in terms of you know, the technology being comparably stupid or very, very limited in its applicability. Um, so people a bit more familiar with the, the conversa conversations you know, around machine learning are probably um, aware of this debate uh, going on between, you know, Gary Marcus and, and a few other people. And Gary Marcus's, you know, big argument is actually that the machine learning paradigm that we're using today uh, creates systems that are greedy, brittle, and opaque. And that's what I meant before when I said they're comparably stupid and very, very limited in their applicability. The, the systems for them to, you know, achieve this uh, degree of automation that we want from them need, first of all, huge amounts of data. So that makes them greedy then they are, in the end, optimized to solve one specific task and only that task. And if you shift the task for the machine, it will fail miserably. So that's why they're brittle. And they are opaque, which means that 
if if things go wrong and the result is not what we expected from the machine, then we have almost you know no idea of why that happened because the 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 neural networks that are used for machine learning are you know essentially black boxes that can cannot be debugged the way that you know uh, conventional source code would have been. So to give you a more specific example of of you know what that yields in the end, if you look at the self-driving car, which is a thing that has been you know, it's always a couple of years in the future, it seems. I know, uh, I re remember well that, you know, it was prophesized in 2016, the fully, you know, level five self-driving car, which wouldn't even have a, a steering wheel anymore. So you would not be able to, you know, intervene, even if you wanted to as a human, would be fully realized. Now we've got 2020 and this thing is still far in the future. And in fact, many people in the automotive industry are paddling back and saying, maybe we will never really reach level five because we will never you know, be able to teach the machine to just drive the last three, four, 500 meters through the field, a thing that is easy for human intelligence. And not only that, but um, these things are error prone in a very specific manner and can be fooled in a very specific manner. The, the, the field of research uh, there is called adversarial examples. And to stay with a self-driving car, uh, self-driving cars can still be fooled quite easily by putting some sticky tape on a, a street sign, right? So you use some reflective sticky tape, you put it on the stop sign, and then the car will no longer realize, the, uh, the image recognition algorithm in the car will no longer realize that there's a stop sign there and will just run over the stop sign. Now, all these kinds of things, you know, people might say, well, we'll figure this out. And in the end, probably we'll make it work. I hope we will. I'm a big fan of technology. You know, I'd like to make that really clear. I'd like to have the self-driving car. I want all those technologies. But it's exactly as Sebastian said. When we're talking about, you know, military applications where at the end of the day, human lives are at stake and there are decisions to be made regarding life and death on the battlefield, I will be very cautious to implement all these kinds of technologies prematurely. And I think that is unfortunately the trajectory that we're now on. And I can hope, I can only hope that, you know, um, the, te uh, the tech community and, and the, the science community that is looking at this from the outside and saying, whoa, 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 people, don't rush into this. There are terrible risks connected to this, legal risks, ethical risks, strategic risks, you know, these escalation uh, scenarios, because everything is speeding up, as Sebastian said before. I can only hope that, you know, this, bear some fruit and that people, you know, uh, um, come up with with regulation before something terrible happens and that we find a way to regulate this te technology the same way we did it, for instance, for biotech or, or, or chemistry, the way we did it with, with biological and, and chemical weapons, for instance. That's a great segue then to my next point. And you just mentioned exactly autonomous cars. And I followed the discussion about ethics of autonomous car. If a car has to decide between killing three people or oh, killing no, one people, oh, no. what kind that of decision the car makes. So <laughs> let's talk about then the ethical questions regarding this kind of weaponry in the military. And there is two things that I would like to uh, go a little further. And that is the dehumanization and the abstractness of war and the fact that there's human dignity to defend. And you, uh, Frank, you have a, this tremendous paper called Prohibiting Autonomous Weapons Put Human's Dignity First, which I read very carefully, and this will go into the show notes. And I would like to go into a little bit into this, because one of the arguments that people say is that in the heat of the battle, a kill is a kill, who cares if it was decided by a machine or if it was decided by a human, the decision was made, The uh, 
you know, the missile was sent or whatever was the machinery used. But I see you guys reacting very, um, very strongly uh, uh, about that. Go a little in more into, into detail and we can start with you, Sebastian. Well, yeah, I, um, I, I will leave the, the military part to Frank because I've, I've also read his paper and I find it brilliant uh, when it comes to, uh, to human dignity. Um, in general, we shouldn't forget that. Um, I think this is a point that, that I can maybe already start with because I used to be military personnel myself and I very much like the point that Frank makes in his paper that combatants are still humans. So because you are a combatant, it, it still doesn't mean that you can be killed in any situation and it doesn't mean that um, you don't have any dignity and the same I think is very interesting when we talk about um, the artificial the intelligent car debate and then you have those uh, uh, I've recently seen a game online where you could then let the car decide if it runs over a chill over children or elderly people or about uh, over doctors uh, and already this sort of thinking is violating human dignity because human dignity says that you should not uh, give different value to different lives. So an old person's life is not worth less than a young person's life. So all those sorts of um, comparing values of life are um, are not um, should not be valid when you believe in human dignity. And the same is true when you think about civilians and combatants, they're all humans. But I leave it here because Frank can brilliantly explain uh, why this is a problem in the uh, in the current debate on lethal autonomous weapon systems. Yeah, I mean, I'm really sorry to the listeners that Sebastian and I are constantly in violent agreement about all these things. But um, yes, I, I mean, I do agree. Uh, I'm not going to touch the, the trolley problem, the infamous trolley problem with regard to the self-driving car. Um, but, um, you know, suffice it to say that um, it is, in fact, from a, you know, uh, very Kantian uh, philosoph philosophical point of view, from a deontological you know, point of view, um, problematic to, uh, you know, assign different values to life. Um, there's of, there's obviously uh, a different school of thought on this. There's a utilitarian way to look at this, uh, which, you know, produces different results. But um, the, the argument that we're making in the paper that you were uh, pointing out, Ricardo, is uh, one um, by my colleague, Professor uh, Elvira Rosa, and myself, where we do say that I... Um, referenced before that you know the the legal problems with regard to uh, delegating the decision over selection and engagement of targets to a weapon system and um, there's all kinds of things you know in there you can you can you know wonder will they ever be able to make the discrimination between combatant and civilian will they use military force uh, appropriately and uh, you know in a proportional manner all these all these kinds of things but you could easily have the thought experiment and say we will be able to build that perfect machine which will be fully compliant with the laws of war and then should we be using it and our answer in that paper is no, we should not be using it because of the you know argument that you were uh, pointing out, Sebastian. Because it can, all these legal uh, debates, you know, seem to imply that it would be all right to you know kill people on the battlefield, combatants on the battlefield, uh, if only you're doing it in a in a uh, manner that is compliant with interna international humanitarian law. But what we're saying is, 
having human life snuffed out by uh, some anonymous algorithm in a machinery because the decision to do that has been delegated maybe hours or days beforehand reduces people in the moment of death to uh, an object, just a data point, you know, being fed through a machinery. And we think that, you know, the least that we can do if we kill each other in war, even if we do it in a completely legal manner, and, you know, there's killing and being killed in war, that's unfortunately uh, a reality. The least thing we can do is recognize each other as fellow human beings while, you know, the killing takes place. And Ricardo, you were making this point about it doesn't really matter if, you know, you're being killed by, I don't know, Ensign Smith or uh, some algorithm, because at the end you're dead. And, you know, there's something to it. I would still say there's some qualitative difference in in there, but that's maybe too philosoph uh, you know, philosophical a point to debate now. What I would say makes a huge difference is do we as a society allow this delegation to take place? So do we as a society detach ourselves from the killing in war to a degree that we don't even, you know, uh, concern ourselves uh, uh, anymore with it in any shape or form and put nothing on our conscience anymore. That's what I think is, is the real difference. Because if Anson Smith did that killing, he will one day return, hopefully, back to society. And we he will, or she, have to live with that, what happened there. And with the fact that he or she killed, you know, fellow human beings. And there will be some discourse around that in society. Whereas if we delegate this and automate it away, we will no longer, you know, spare any thought about it. And I don't think that's a, that's a thing that any society that is, you know, feels connected to some basic humanitarian values and norms should be doing. So that's the main thrust of the argument that we're making in that paper, that human dignity is very much at stake here and that we should not be delegating the decision of your uh, life and death on the battlefield uh, in, you know, under any circumstances, if even if we were, we were able to do it in a manner that would be legally uh, okay. So as you can imagine, I'm also violently in agreement with you, Frank, and, and of course with Sebastian, but let's play, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a little more, and that is some actors are bad actors, and some of those actors, it's good for everybody that they're getting taken out of the, uh, of the, um, the war theater, let's call it that way. And then, as Sebastian said, and that was re really interesting, you, we can speed up that decision. So that, that is something that I would like to explore with you gentlemen in the second podcast. So the invitation is already made because we also need to talk about military escalation and nu nuclear instability. But for now, I'm just going to ask you guys to go into a little more of a last thought and tell people how can, they can follow this conversation and know more about this such important topic. And let's start with you, Sebastian. Right. Yeah, well, I think the problem is you've mentioned speed. Um, if you look at the current um, distribution of power in the world, you have a situation where you have the United States and um, prospectively China as a challenger on the on the world stage. And for, even for China and for other powers, it will take years, if not decades, to even match the military might and power of the United States, and same is true for Europe. Um, so the uh, the lethal autonomous weapon systems basically open a potential fast track to um, to gap this uh, to to close this gap. Um, if you want to 
to take over without catching up. So this is this could potentially be another arms race in a different realm. And I think this leaves Europe with a choice. Europe can either start competing in that arms race or it could at least try to unite around a common position and and try to together fight for regulation in a way that seems appropriate to us. And unfortunately, what we see at the moment is quite the opposite. Um, in the European Union or among the EU's members, there is only Austria, the only member state that is advocating for an international ban of lethal autonomous weapon systems. Whereas the other member states, mostly the United K, well, former member uh, United Kingdom and France, are um, developing autonomous systems themselves. Um, so at this moment, uh, Europe is probably losing out technologically and missing out on the opportunity to to fight for international regulation, which is the, the worst of both worlds. And this I find very disappointing, but I think it's still not too late to maybe change that course. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, you were mentioning bad actors, Ricardo, and the question really is then, are the bad actors, you know, the template for our standard of behavior? No. I mean, chemical weapons are being used in Syria. Does that mean that, you know, all the European countries now have to, you know, acquire and use chemical weapons? No, it's not what we do. It's not what Europe is, you know, representing in the world. And Europe now is a superpower in one regard, regulation and exporting regulation. So uh, I think we do need to get our act together internally and then push for, you know, standards that we, mm, you know, with all the, the values that we uh, hold dear in Europe and that are, by the way, enshrined in all kinds of, you know, international legal documents, in international humanitarian rights law and so on and so forth. Uh, push for regulation at the international stage. And I think there are also, you know, very specific projects where this can be done. For instance, if you look at the Franco-German Future Combat Air System project, there will obviously be lots and lots of autonomy to make that, you know, future system of systems, this combat cloud um, of, a, of, a, of a plane being surrounded by unmanned systems work. But the challenge will be to do that in a manner that we think is appropriate and then show to the rest of the world, this is how it can be done. This is how we can retain meaningful human control over life and death decisions on the battlefield and still be using all these technologies you know, to, to our military advantage. Um, so yeah, we need to be fully engaged uh, with all of that. And if people want to um, learn more about this, I can maybe point them to two addresses the one would be the international committee for robot arms control um, which is a network of scholars that i'm a member of which is also very active in the so-called campaign to stop killer robots um, so icrack.net would be one address and the other one would be the international panel on the regulation of autonomous weapons ipro um, which is also producing you know very very high quality reports on the issue and if you want to dig deep into what the issues are and you know, what the legal and the ethical and the strategic implications are and how human control might be, you know, implementable, then that's your number one resource, I think. All this will be in the description of the podcast. We have a lot of food for thought. This was a very enlightened conversation. And like I just mentioned, we just uh, talk a third of it because there are two other topics that I would really, really li like to have your expertise on regarding um, 
artificial intelligence in the military. But uh, Frank, you were saying about such violent agreement. I do know there's a violent disagreement between the two of you regarding a European army. But that is something that we're going to leave for later also. So for now, I'm going to thank you so much, gentlemen, for coming to the podcast. And I hope to have you back soon so that we can continue this really, really interesting conversation. Thank thanks you for so much, having, Ricardo. Yeah, thanks for, having, uh, thanks for having me. And I'm happy to come back anytime. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you feel like it, give us a five star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. We also have a new podcast, which is called Liberal Europe Podcast in Lockdown. And you can find it on our website, which is liberalforum.eu forward slash blog. And also to remind you that the European Liberal Forum is organizing every Wednesday a web seminar called Liberties in Lockdown. So please join us for that. And you can know more information on liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>